0: Anybody have a struggle or a trouble or a difficulty, a conflict or anything like that in your life before you came to church today? Well, I am hoping uh, that this could be a great reset moment on the perspective on that particular struggle. You know, prayer is such a wonderful reset time. And you can either have a prayer life or you can have a life of prayer. And God calls us. To a life of prayer where every moment of our life can be a point of reset. If you uh, take out this little sheet of paper here, there's a scripture. I want to read this, start with this. And what a way to live. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And today I want to talk about this posture of prayer, this this humility, this, this seeking of the mind of Christ within our lives. And one of the uh, most popular tools for this is this prayer that's written here uh, incorrectly uh, due to my attention deficit disorder. Um, it's called the Serenity Prayer. This is the long version of it. It reads, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference, living one day at a time, and this is not in there, but it should be, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did, life or this sinful world as it is, and not as I would have it trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. Now, this short version, this serenity prayer short version, has probably been cross-stitched, doilyed, uh, bumper-stickered, velvet-painted, Zippo, lightered, whatever. I mean, you see this thing everywhere. And uh, sometimes it's become so trite that we miss the power of it. It's been satirized. God, grant me the senility to, um, to forget the people I never liked anyway. The good fortune to see the ones that I do and the eyesight to know the difference. You know, people make fun of it. But it's powerful, and its origin has been disputed. But back in 1932, Reinhold Niebuhr, a professor at Union Seminary in New York City, he presented it at the end of a chapel service, and uh, he says that he, he really thinks that he did write it. You know, when you write things and you speak, it gets confusing as to what's yours and what's someone else's. If you look at the books I've written, most of it's plagiarized, and and uh, uh, you know, I thought it was mine, but it probably came from somewhere else that I read. But but anyway, uh, I think that he probably did uh, write this prayer, even though the concepts are uh, ancient, and um, and it its popularity is there because it's so profound. And it starts with, God grant me the serenity. You can't manufacture serenity. You have to ask God for it. And he says he'll give it to us. And and what is it? I mean, it's this this peace that passes all understanding. It's this completeness that we have and this this fullness of life, this, this thing called serenity. And and we ask God for it. In the Hebrew, it's shalom, which is kind of a foretaste of heaven here on earth. Serenity, wholeness, completeness. At the Last Supper, when Jesus was going to be leaving his buddies, he wanted to leave them with something. And in John 14, 27, he, he says, I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart, And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give, so don't be troubled or afraid. He didn't say, I'm going to leave you with whenever you need money, you just hold out your hand and all the financial riches you could ever want will always be available to you 24 hours a day. That isn't what Jesus wanted to leave his buddies with. He wanted to leave them with a peace of mind and a peace of heart, and we call that serenity. And when you have this serenity, you you don't have to be afraid of anything. You don't have to lie. You don't have to cheat. You don't have to steal. You're content in this serenity. Now, it's different than security. The world gives us temporary security that can be snatched up at any moment. The job, the money, the bass boat, whatever it is that's security to you. It can quickly go away. But this serenity is something that it's a a taste of heaven, a a touch of God, a drop of the divine, and you you love it so much, you love living in it so much that you don't allow resentment or bitterness or uh, anger or fear or shame or something like that to come in and rob you of it. I have had fleeting moments of serenity. I have five children, and when you have five children, your serenity moments are fleeting. But they've never been at the top of some achievement. The serenity that I've experienced has been in the valley, in the darkness, in in the despairing moments of life where everything else is stripped away. That's where I have found Serenity to be the easiest to experience. Um, When I have serenity, I don't have to take matters into my own hands. I don't have to try to change you. In my serenity, I can accept the things that I cannot change. This, This life of acceptance I don't think we could preach enough about it because we spend so much of our life trying to change and push and manipulate. We waste our time on things that that can't be changed. And we spend too little of our time working on the things that can be changed. You know, if I am in in this lifestyle of acceptance, I can accept the companions around me that I cannot control. The circumstances that I can't change. Maybe the consequences that I can't correct or the challenges that I can't conquer. In John 16, we read, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is quite clear that the trial and the sorrow that you walked into this church with is a reality of life that you cannot change. Now you can change your reaction to it, but you can't change that reality. And the best we can do is develop a lifestyle of acceptance rather than rejection. Now, we all know rejection. We're masters at rejection. I was reading about the soldier who got a Dear John letter, a cruel, rejecting Dear John letter that said, Dear John, please send back my picture. I'd like to use it in the engagement announcement for my marriage to somebody else. Rejection. We know how to do that. Well, his soldier buddies collected all of the pictures that they had on their lockers and they put them in a shoebox. And he wrote a letter and said, Dear Gene, please, out of all these pictures, pick yours out and send the rest back. I've forgotten what you look like. <laughs> now that's rejection. And we know rejection. I live in a marriage where I am accepted. Except for a couple of, uh, of things. But, but it is a blessing. I have lived the other way. And to live in the acceptance that God has for us, then, then, and then sharing that with other people, is, it's a, a serenity, a peace that passes understanding. And so we need to develop this life of acceptance. You know, last time I preached, I was talking about that big pig I saw at the fair. I can't get that pig out of my mind. And when I was preparing this, I was thinking about that old saying, never try to teach a pig to sing. It is a total waste of your time and very annoying to the pig. Well, we can't change the pigs, the people around us. We can't do that. All we can change is is the person standing in the 12-inch square in which we stand. Rather than trying to change the other person, ask God to change yourself into an accepting person who can accept the flaws and the other things in the other person that cause us so much trouble. We had a lady call New Life Live the other day. She'd been sober six years, and she wanted to know if... If I thought she could take a drink or two on vacation, uh, have a little glass of wine here or there. Well, millions of people have done the research for her. And if you're an alcoholic, you can't just have, well, you can have a glass or two of wine on vacation, maybe one vacation, and then it becomes the bottle and then. More and then more. You can't control it. If you're an alcoholic, that's the reason you stop drinking to begin with. You can't control it. Once you accept that, the whole world opens up for you. But if you continue to argue that point and reject it, then your life can be quite miserable. So, so here we ask God to grant us the, the serenity to accept the things. I cannot change and the courage to change the things that I can. Now, the original version said change the things that I should change, which makes sense because there are a lot of things we can change that don't really need to be changed. But there are things that need change, and it requires this courage, courage to do what is needed to be done when it's needed to be done, no matter the consequences so that with courage that God grants us, we can stand up for ourselves rather than cower in fear. Stand up for another person. We can challenge the behavior rather than enable it. We can have the courage to tell the truth even though we're going to experience some consequences from it. We can develop this habit of courageous living, because as it says in John 16:33, Jesus has overcome the world, and um, and we are called to change. Hebrews 12:1 is a great example. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off or let us change everything that slows us down, especially. The sin that so easily trips us up. So in God's love and God's power and in His truth and in His presence, we reset our life from this fear-based protection to this courageous living. No matter the consequences. Courage to change the things I can and then the wisdom to know the difference. Now, I just love wisdom. I'm jealous of people who have the right thing to say at the right time. There was a father who had a 16-year-old who wanted a car. And his father said, I got two problems. You have horrible grades, and you have long hair, and I don't like either. You cut your hair, you fix your grades, I'll get a car for you to drive. Six, uh, nine weeks later, he comes back, the, the child has produced a report card of all A's. And he says to his dad, he says, Dad, all A's, I would like a car. And the dad says, you, you, you do have the grades, and congratulations, that's amazing, but you still have the long hair. And the boy said, Dad, it doesn't matter that I have long hair, that's, that's just outward appearance. Even Jesus had long hair, and the dad said, and Jesus walked wherever he went. Now, that's wisdom. When I have an opportunity with my kids to say stuff like that, I say, duh. I love that. Wisdom. God grant me the wisdom to know the difference. Wisdom to have discernment so that I'm working on the things that that I need to be working on, not expending all of my energy on things that I don't need to be working on. It's an art. And it's a way of life that is so peaceful because I'm not frustrated all the time by trying to change something that I shouldn't change. Now, wisdom, sadly often comes out of adversity and struggle and suffering. Someone asked a wise man, how did you get to be so wise? And he said, I got to be so wise by consistently doing the right thing. And how did you learn to consistently do the right thing? By consistently doing the wrong thing. But we don't have to always make the mistake To develop the wisdom, we have God's word that is a path. And God, it says if we'll ask him, he will direct our path. But it's in our pain and our sorrow that wisdom seems to come creeping along. And it really is a gift that God doesn't waste our pain and our suffering and our struggle. He does produce wisdom from it. In 1968, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And on that night, 77 cities burned in riots all across this country. And Indianapolis was not one of those cities. Because Robert Kennedy was in town, scheduled to give a speech at the time in a very tough part of town, 17th and Broadway. The chief of police, his handlers, everyone told him, don't go down there because you will be killed. But in his courage, he knew it was the place that he needed to be. In his wisdom, he said, I I know how angry you must be that this great man was killed by a white man and his gun." I know that feeling as my brother was killed by a white man and his gun. And he connected with their sorrow and their struggle and their suffering. And then he pulls out of his head this quote from the Greek playwright Aeschylus. He's speaking to a lot of people that were very uneducated that showed up that night with guns chains and knives to riot and he calls them to this higher level of understanding and peace and wisdom and he quotes this amazing quote he who learns must suffer and even in our sleep pain which cannot forget falls down drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. One woman that was there said, in the midst of these gasoline fumes, from from containers that people had brought to burn down this city came seeping in this compassion and this wisdom and people walked away and went home in their silence. Oh, what a way to live in God's wisdom where we have the discernment to know what to do, what not to do, what path to follow, what path to give up what to change and not to change, rather than trying to change the person that we reject. We pray for God to turn us into accepting people the way He accepted us. Proverbs 3, 5-8 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not depend on your own understanding. Seek His will in all you do, and He will show you which path to take. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Then you will have healing for your body and strength for your bones. The result of a, a prayer like this is a partnership with Jesus. It's a posture of humility where Jesus comes alongside you and, and you you start to have fellowship with Jesus and and you've, you experience him with you on a moment-by-moment basis. You see things from the, the perspective of Jesus. You treat people as Jesus would treat them. And you kind of like the person that you become because it, it's just the best way that you can possibly be to be like the Savior. It's a, it's a posture, it's a partnership. And, and you go on, as it says in this, this little prayer, living one day at a time. Refusing to live in a yesterday you cannot change. Or a future that you cannot predict. But in today. And refusing to try to control everybody around you in that day at a time living. It's as old as the Old Testament where in the wilderness the Israelites were were given manna just enough for one day to eat. And if you took more it just rotted. They were dependent upon a grant from God every day to live. Just like this prayer can can lead us to reset our day, to depend on God from the very beginning of that day. It's a concept that Jesus talked about in Matthew 6, 34, where he says, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. And then the prayer goes on, enjoy, it's living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, rather than try to fight back, but just to accept that we're going to have hardship. That's the way to live in peace, is knowing it's coming and being ready for it. Taking, as Jesus did, the sinful world as it is and not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will. Romans 8, 28 is true. He takes all of this stuff and weaves it together in this amazing tapestry for our very own good. He makes it all right. He mends the brokenness, heals the wounds, and it all comes together for our good. Even the sorry mistakes that we make even the futile attempts at control even the stupidity that flows from our lives he works it all together for our good and this little prayer reminds us of that and, and what I love it ends with so that I can be reasonably happy in this life You know, happiness doesn't come from going after happiness. That's like chasing a butterfly. The butterfly is always just right there. And then you quit chasing the butterfly and it lands on your head. That's the way happiness is. It seeps into your life when you live your life with serenity and, and acceptance and courage and wisdom. Reasonable happiness in this life. But then, in the wisdom of this little prayer, it points us toward what is really important when it says, and supremely happy with Him forever in the next. Amen. Whatever we're going through, we need to, Realize that this reality here is a very, very temporary state. And we need to be focused on another reality that exists right now with God on his throne. And one day we will experience that new heaven and that new earth. And sometimes the reset button for us is off of this misery and on to that life in the new heaven and the new earth. It's, it's spoken of in Revelation 21, and I'd like for my little uh, assistant, Solomon, to come up and read from the, um, the Read and Share Bible. One of the biggest promises God ever made was that we will live with him for, in heaven forever. He said that there would be a new heaven, a new earth, and we would get a new body. One that won't get old, but will live forever. In the new heaven, no one will ever be sad again. No one will ever die again. The streets will be made of gold, and there will be gates of pearl. Everything will be more beautiful than anything you can imagine. And best of all, Jesus will be there we will be with him forever. And this is my favorite chapter because my grandfather died and now he's with Jesus and he, he will never be sad again or die or anything. Amen, buddy. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you, Solomon. My wife was at Women of Faith uh, last Saturday. Marilyn Meberg read Revelation 21, this passage, which was a great comfort to my wife who had lost her father recently. It reminded her that he's in a better place, in a new world. And then, Last Sunday, the day after that, on the way to church, Solomon is sitting in the back seat with his Bible, and he says, Mom, I'd just like to read you my favorite chapter from the Bible. <laughs> and he, he read it then as he did now. You know, sometimes there is no no reset for us here on this earth. There's no physical healing. There's no emotional uh, healing There is nothing but continued heartache in certain situations and circumstances and the reset is for us to go from thinking about this world to realizing that there's a better place for all of us. And so when you leave here today, no matter where you go, be headed toward a new heaven and a new earth by accepting Christ as your Savior and living as Christ lived on this earth. This next 40 days, we all have a great opportunity to reset our lives away from our own selfishness, away from our our own pettiness and into the life of Jesus and into others and their needs and even beyond to a new heaven and a new earth. And I pray that throughout this week and throughout these 40 days that God will grant you the serenity to accept the things that you cannot change, the courage to change the things that you can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Let me pray for you. God, I pray that that in the midst of heartache and struggle and suffering, that you will out of that drop by drop upon our heart grant us wisdom. But more than anything, Lord, may we reset our lives to a moment-by-moment presence of you in our life. Grant us you, God, above all else, In your name we pray, amen. Don't we serve an awesome God? That's that's right.